Hey, we're going to have a guest speaker tonight because Mike is out of town. A lot of us have already had the opportunity to hear Doug Groteis, who is a professor at Denver Seminary in philosophy. His um, specialty is apologetics, and that does not mean he goes around saying, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. Far from it. Um, he is amazingly gifted and skilled in speaking and writing and talking about the Christian faith, especially to those who are very skeptical or antagonistic toward it. That is what the apologetics part is about. Um, Mike was called out of town for his aunt's funeral. He and his brothers are road tripping to Indiana, is it? Indiana. Um, fun road trip, sad reason to have to go. But it just dawned on me as I was sitting here, you know that sinking feeling when a coworker calls and asks you to cover their shift at the last minute. Well, it's kind of like what Doug is doing for Mike tonight, except you know there's always that payback, except I can't imagine Doug inviting Mike to talk at or teach his philosophy classes at Denver Seminary. So this is pretty much a one-way favor because Doug believes in scum of the earth, and we're very, very grateful for that belief and for your willingness to be here, Doug. Thanks. Why don't we start just with a moment of silence before we begin? Lord, we ask you to teach us, to give us wisdom. May we grow in our knowledge of Christ and our ability to make him known. Through our time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my text tonight is Matthew 11, 1 through 11, and i like to read the whole thing, and then I will come back to it piece by piece. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 11, 1 through 11, this is the New International Version. Verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, that's John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he went, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see, the blind receive sight, The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he The title of this message is Growing Through Doubt, and it's quite amazing to realize that such a great man of God as John the Baptist was suffering from doubt, 
And what is encouraging to me is how mercifully and lovingly and intelligently Jesus dealt with the doubts of John the Baptist. Now, sadly, this does not always happen. I was reading Steve Jobs' biography written by Walter Isaacson. And in 1968, Steve Jobs saw the cover of Life magazine and saw a pair of starving children from Biafra. Some of our old are old enough to remember that famine. And Steve Jobs was rightly disturbed by this tragedy, and he went to his pastor for help. He held up one finger and asked, Did God know I was going to hold up this finger before I did so? The pastor said, Yes, God knows everything. Then Steve Jobs produced the Life magazine cover photo and asked, Well, does God know about this and what's going to happen to those children? The pastor replied, Steve, I know that you don't understand, but yes, God knew about this. And apparently that is as far as the discussion went. The author of this biography, Isaacson, reports that, quote, Jobs announced that he didn't want to have anything to do with worshiping such a God, and he never went back to church. Now think of the influence of someone like Steve Jobs, who later became a kind of Buddhist, Think of his influence through design, through his example. And there was a moment in his life where someone could have begun to discuss this whole matter of thinking rationally about your Christian beliefs. But instead, apparently, the pastor just said, we can't understand, just leave it at that. Now, what we find Jesus doing is giving John the Baptist reasons to continue to believe that he, Jesus, is the Messiah. And this underscores the fact that believers need to simply not just have faith, but have knowledge. That is, we need to have reasons for our deepest, most significant, consequential beliefs. And they are available. So what I'd like to talk about is the sorts of doubts that may assail Christians, and then the doubt that comes from a wrong view of faith. And then we'll come back to how Jesus addressed the doubt of John the Baptist and how this can help us and apply to us. Now, we know John the Baptist was a great prophet and leader. Jesus himself said so. I'll come back to his credentials later. Yet he himself not only had a small doubt, he wondered if Jesus was really the Messiah, was really the Christ. Now, John's whole purpose... And his ministry was to announce Jesus. That was the culmination of it. He called people to repentance. He called out immorality in high places. But really, the center point of his entire ministry was to announce and proclaim and exalt Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's in prison. He doesn't understand why he's there, and he is doubting. Now, doubt really paralyzes and cripples many people in the church, and it need not do so. So my basic message is that we can face our doubts, our questions with integrity and find greater knowledge and therefore find greater conviction and courage to work out the implications of the kingdom of God through the power of Jesus Christ. Many people think that doubt in itself is something shameful, That is, it's something to hide, to bury, to lock up. You would never say, I was reading a passage in the Bible, and it just seems so bizarre, I have no idea what it meant, and 
I kind of wonder sometimes if the Bible's true. A lot of times we're afraid to do that. But if we properly handle these kinds of questions, we can avoid becoming double-minded. Now, I won't read this passage, but in James 1, there's a description of a very severe kind of doubt that actually causes people to be in two minds. And they lose their conviction. They, They think yes, they think no, they don't know what to do. But not all doubt is that extreme. So doubt is obviously not the ideal state for a believer. I I run across people who sometimes say, in order to have faith, you must also have doubt. And to use a technical term, that is a crock. The ideal state, I'm I'm a philosopher, I use these terms once in a while. Uh, I won't tell you what's in the crock, but I think you know probably what is. No, the ideal state is to wholeheartedly trust, obey, worship, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ without hesitation. That's the ideal. But we don't always reach the ideal. So my approach here is that we need to identify whatever doubts we may have or our friends, family may have, and then properly treat the doubt instead of pretending it's not there. You know, it's not a good idea to pretend that you don't have a serious physical problem, to just be in denial about it. It needs to be identified, and it needs to be treated. Now, there are three different types of doubt. I'm only really going to focus on one of the three. But one type of doubt is this. Well, I believe Christianity is true, but I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. I talked to a fellow about that this morning after the message. That's not really my subject here. Another one is, is Christianity true? And this is a doubt by a non-Christian, someone who hasn't confessed faith in Christ. But what I'm focusing on most directly this evening is doubting some aspect of Christianity periodically or repeatedly as a follower of Christ. Now, this kind of doubt is actually fairly normal in spiritual development. We don't usually become Christians and immediately believe everything we're supposed to with perfect certainty. At least I haven't. If you have, let me know. I'd like to write your biography. But this typically does not happen. Now, there are three types of doubt. One is a factually based doubt. That's where we question or doubt the sufficiency of evidence for the Christian perspective. We wonder sometimes, is there a God? Was Jesus God? Did he work miracles? Did he really rise from the dead? And so on. There can also be emotionally based doubt, feelings that are not properly aligned to the truth, emotional blocks to believing what God has revealed. And we've all been brought up, we've all lived in a damaged, broken, groaning world. And there's also volitionally based doubt, which has to do with just not growing in your faith because you're not putting it into practice. You're not obeying God and you're not seeing him manifest himself. Now, these are often interrelated, but as a philosopher, I want to treat the intellectual doubt, and that's really what the Lord Jesus is focusing on here. Doubt, while it is not the ideal state and is not required for belief, can be a type of questioning and pursuing a deeper knowledge. It can be a spur to a deeper faith. Now, that's not the same as unbelief. Unbelief is, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in heaven and hell. That's not doubt. That's unbelief. That's not what we're talking about. 
And that's not what John the Baptist was experiencing. He didn't send his followers to say, tell Jesus I don't believe in him anymore. That wasn't it. And we're not talking about extreme skepticism either, where people have no concern for truth. Christian claims or otherwise. They just smirk, shrug, and say, whatever. No one can know what is true, and I, don't really don't ca- I really don't care. So we're not dealing with that either. We're dealing with the questions, sometimes very nagging and disturbing, that affect the committed follower of Jesus Christ. Now let me talk about a wrong view of faith, Christian faith, that often generates doubt. And then we'll talk about Uh, the Christian view of faith. Actually, we'll reverse that. We'll talk about the biblical view, and then we'll talk about a wrong view. Now, what does it mean to have Christian faith? Well, it means that you believe in the essential Christian doctrines. It's a truthful belief that is reasonable, trusting, and produces spiritual fruit or godly character and good works. And, of course, you believe that there is a God. God exists subjectively that Christ is Lord, that he died for your sins, he was buried, he rose again from the dead, he will come again. So it involves belief that certain things are objectively true. The tomb was empty. Jesus did appear to people. He will come again to judge the quick and the dead. But it's not simply giving assent. It's also entrusting yourself. So I can trust that a doctor is an expert with a particular kind of physical problem. I can believe that, but I have to give myself over to the physician to actually receive the help. So Christian belief is belief that certain things are the case that are true, and it's also belief in, the idea of receiving, submitting to the doctor's care, receiving forgiveness, justification, new life, the Holy Spirit from God. So it's our subjective response to the objective truths that have been revealed to us in Scripture and history. And moreover, we're called in 1 Peter 3, 15, 16, and many other passages to have reasons why we believe what we believe. This is called apologetics, as Fran mentioned. And it's the rational defense as Christianity as true and meaningful and rational. And I'm so committed to this that I wrote a brick called Christian Apologetics, which, if nothing else, can be used as a doorstop or a weapon. But I I typically have my students read it. They might think, this guy's kind of strange. He brings his own book and he doesn't bring the Bible. But let's just not worry about that. I, I did print out the biblical verse right here. The reason is that I'm afraid of the lighting, and I'm old, and my eyes are not what they used to be, all right? So we should have or develop a reason for the hope that is within us and then present that to unbelievers with gentleness and respect, which means we need knowledge. We need justified true beliefs. We need good reasons for the things that matter most, the things that we hold to. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, why do that if it isn't true? Why do that? if you don't have confidence that Christ is, in fact, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's a strong claim, but there's very, very good reason to believe it. Now, apologetics is not only for non-believers. 
Obviously, we use that when people have questions about the existence of God or the reliability of the Bible. It's also for Christians, obviously, because that's what Jesus is engaging in with John. I'll make that much more clear in just a moment. But we want to love God with all of our mind. And I love this quote from Edward John Carnell. He said, Faith rests in the sufficiency of the evidence. You don't have to take a blind leap of faith to trust in the triune God and to trust in the work of Christ for our redemption. Now, if we do have a legitimate faith in the work of Christ for us, that will generate within us a desire to glorify God. We're justified by faith. We believe that Christ atoned for our sins. He took the wrath of God for us. He said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so we could be accepted. He was judged so we could be forgiven. That's the gospel. And you receive that with the empty hands of faith, believing that it is true. If you believe that, then you believe that Christ is not only Savior, he has delivered you and rescued you, but he is also Lord. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we want to have a confident knowledge of God that produces a world-changing kind of commitment. Now, our commitment and our acts of faith do not justify us. On the last day, we don't say to God, look at all the good things we've done, because that would still fall infinitely short of justifying us. We come with the righteousness of Christ or not. But a follower of Christ needs conviction and commitment to serve God, to make the mission and kingdom of God known in the world. Now, some people think, that faith is something very different. Let me give you an example I get from Oz Guinness's book, God in the Dark, which is about faith and doubt. He lived in Switzerland for a time, and he remembered uh, seeing a peasant with a donkey who was completely overloaded. And the man kept hitting the donkey to go up the hill, hitting it, hitting it, hitting it. And, of course, every time he hit the donkey, the donkey got weaker and weaker and weaker and couldn't go up the hill. And Oz says, that's often how we treat doubt in the Christian life. We whip ourselves. You know, believe, believe, believe. And actually, you, then you just pass out after a while. Or someone tells you, believe, believe. Well, we need help. And the donkey needed was probably more food, a better master, and, <laughs> and maybe a, a lighter load. But we often treat doubt in such a way as to punish ourselves or to punish others unnecessarily. We want to avoid that. So faith is not against or without reason, although many people think it is. Many people think that faith in God and Christ and salvation, the Bible, has no rational support. It's kind of isolated and insulated from the claims of history and science and psychology and all the rest. And sadly, some people attempt to secure Certainty through ignorance. Let me say that again. Some people try to secure Christian certainty through ignorance. It's like putting blinders on. Well, I believe in Christ, but I don't want to think about what my Buddhist friend might say. I don't want to think about what Islam is doing. I just, just want to go to church and read the Bible, worship God. That's all good. But if there really is an apologetics call on the church, and that's why I wrote the mammoth book there, then we're supposed to outthink the world for Christ. We're not supposed to be afraid of what Buddhists think or what 
Muslims, Muslims think or what atheists think. Now, not everybody is called to be a Christian philosopher the way I am, but everyone is called to have a reason for the hope that is within them. And so we want the spirit of truth to animate us and to give us intellectual confidence that can be shared with other people. But that doesn't happen instantaneously. God uses means. I've been studying the Christian worldview, the Bible, other worldviews now for 36 years. God didn't just download all the knowledge the moment I converted. That would be nice. This massive divine download, you know. Now I've got every answer to every question. I never have to go to school. God uses means. Even Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature before God and man. Luke 2.52. Now, let me give you three bad, horrible responses to problems of doubt. These are very common. And in fact, these often drive people out of the church. You'll probably recognize some of these. Someone struggling with a doubt about Scripture or something God did in the Old Testament or some saying of Jesus that just seems very odd or off-putting. And Christians will often say things like this. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. My mom, when I used to have a pain in my arm, or I say, Mom, it hurts when I go like this. She'd say, don't go like that. (laughs) Don't worry. She, She was a good mom. She took me to the doctor when I needed. But don't think about it. Well, that's pretty hard to do when it's gnawing away at your guts. And when you say you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, and you really wonder, is the Bible true? And how do I deal with the spiritual dryness? Don't think about it. That's not very helpful. It goes against our nature. God made us to know him, to know the world, and to know ourselves, and to make him known to the world. So don't think about it. It's not the right response. Here's another one. Just believe. That was simple. I understand this text in Leviticus. Just believe. Well, it's, I don't get it. It's strange. Just believe. Now, think of going to a physician and you have a broken leg. And the physician looks at you and says, just walk. Why are you bothering me? Well, I can't walk. I broke my leg. Just walk. I've got more. Don't worry. What if you go to a speech therapist because you have a problem with a lisp or a problem with stuttering or something, and you talk a little bit, and of course you show some of your speech problems, and the therapist says, just talk. I mean, just talk. You know, find some other speech therapist at that point. Or a lifeguard sees sees someone drowning, and he's got a megaphone, and he says, swim, swim, swim. You're not getting it. Swim. This doesn't help, all right? Or, very similar to these two, people will say, have blind faith. Faith is blind. That's not a biblical view. And moreover, if you say have blind faith, why have blind faith in Jesus? Why not Islam? Why not Confucianism? If it's blind, you have no idea what's true, and you have no reasons for believing anything. So have blind faith doesn't help because someone might say, hey, I'll try blind faith in some other religion. And the person would say, don't do that. And 
the doubter would say, why? Have blind faith in Christianity. You see, this is not going to go anywhere either. I don't have to belabor that point, all right? Faith in the truths revealed in the Scripture and nature and human nature, this faith need not be blind by any means. In fact, we're called to walk by faith, not by sight, but we're not called to walk by stupidity or ignorance. And Scripture says we should be willing to be fools for Christ, but not idiots. And my distinction there is that a fool for Christ is willing to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel, be willing to be viewed as silly, but you're never called to be an ignoramus for Christ. I mean, find that text for me in the Bible somewhere. Be an ignoramus for Christ. No. We are to know God and to make God known. Now, we believe all kinds of things without seeing them. Think of a pilot coming into DIA in a snowstorm. She can't see much of anything, but she hears from the control tower, she looks at the computer readings and trusts that she's going to be able to land the plane. You can have knowledge without sight. The Bible contrasts not faith with knowledge, but faith with sight. And we believe all kinds of things with adequate justification without seeing them, like that other people have thoughts. I mean, sometimes that does require blind faith. But, you know, we believe that people have thoughts. You don't see the thoughts. One could go on, and I won't, because I'm a philosopher and it's too dangerous. We are not called to be the blind leading the blind. We're called to be the light of the world. Big difference. Now, how exactly did Jesus deal with John the Baptist? First of all, in the first three verses, the followers of John the Baptist come to Jesus and say, look, are you the Messiah or not? John wants to know. Now, think about John the Baptist. He's mentioned in all four Gospels. His ministry was foretold in a vision and prophecy to his parents. He was prophesied to come in Matthew 3.1 and also in Isaiah 4.3. He was dedicated to God and filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. Okay. He was an ascetic. He denied himself. He had uh, an interesting way of eating and clothing himself. If you know that, he uh, ate wild locusts and honey and dressed in camel's hair, and it was not a fashion statement. He gave moral exhortations about sharing wealth, honesty, and government, and in the military. He taught his disciples how to pray and fast. And, of course, he identified the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he baptized Jesus. He said, no, 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 I don't want to baptize you. You don't need it. But Jesus wanted to identify with the people, even though he was without sin. So he lets John the Baptist baptize him. And John says, as his ministry is fading out and the ministry of Jesus is increasing, he says, he must increase and I must decrease, John 3.30. And he was in jail because he challenged the sexual immorality of Herod. And we know that even after the resurrection of Jesus, John the Baptist still had followers. We see that in Acts 18 and 19. And there are even a few of them still around in different parts of the world. They're followers of John the Baptist who don't know the full gospel yet. Now, this is the man that questions the identity of Jesus. Why would he do this? We don't know exactly, but I think we can make an educated guess. John said that, The kingdom has come, therefore repent. God is going to judge. The kingdom will be revealed in a new way through Christ. But he's in jail. And Jesus is going around healing and preaching and casting out demons. And John is in jail. You think when the Messiah comes, he could at least get me out of jail. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it, psychologically? 
So John was a prophet of God, but that doesn't mean he understood everything about the unfolding of the kingdom. So he had some doubts and he sent his followers. He was in prison. He couldn't go do it. Now, this is what Jesus did not say to the doubting John the Baptist. He didn't say to the followers, go tell John to stop thinking about it. All right. Secondly, go tell John to just believe. No good. Go tell John to just have blind faith and don't worry about evidence and reason. See, Jesus did not tell the followers of John to have John beat himself, like the poor donkey was beaten, was beaten, right? He had a better way of approaching it, and this is what he did in verses 4 through 6. He cited evidence of his messianic identity. There are six facts about what Jesus was doing in public ministry that he announces. The blind see, because Jesus is supernaturally healing them. The lame walk. Jesus supernaturally heals them. Those with leprosy are cured. These are not everyday things. Jesus supernaturally heals them. The deaf hear. Jesus touches them supernaturally. They hear. The dead are raised. Jesus supernaturally brings them back to life. And the poor hear the good news that Jesus preaches. Now, I'm not going to give you all the text, but this fulfills a number of messianic prophecies in a supernatural way. And this is the argument that Jesus is giving the followers of John to take back to doubting John. If someone does these six things, then he is the Messiah. I am doing these six things. And it's evident that I'm doing these things. Therefore, I am the Messiah. It's an argument. It's actually a deductive argument called modus ponens, or affirming the antecedent. It's a sound and valid argument, and it delivers truth rationally. You see, you don't have to understand everything about a belief to have knowledge. But Jesus says, go tell John these six things. John will know that these six things show that I'm the Messiah, even though he doesn't know why he's in prison. You see, you can have legitimate knowledge of God and Christ and salvation with less than 100% certainty. That is very significant. Now, complete certainty is the ideal. But it's not required. You can grow in your certainty. You can grow in your confidence to go out and do the will of God. So this is very encouraging because Jesus appeals to tangible evidence and fulfilled prophecy. So what Jesus is doing is engaging in apologetics to build up John the Baptist, this great prophet. And he says, blessed is the one who keeps believing. And he just gave reasons to believe. He didn't just say, just keep believing, keep believing. He gave evidence and arguments for that. And then in verses 7 through 11, I won't read those, but Jesus wants to make sure, and I want you to know, that the question that John the Baptist asked was legitimate. So Jesus says, John is not a fickle man. He's not swayed by popular opinion. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of personal sacrifice. He's not wealthy. He's not in it for the money. He's a great prophet foretold in the Hebrew Bible. But he's part of an order that is passing away because the kingdom would dawn in its fullness very, very quickly. My point here is that he doesn't want the crowd to think that somehow John had lost his faith by asking a question. It's a profound question, but Jesus gave a profound answer, and he says, continue to revere John. He's worth 
appreciating. Now, how can we bring a couple of these things together quickly to help those who doubt today? First of all, think of Jude 22, which says, be merciful to those who doubt. Don't whip them, all right? Be merciful. Don't beat the donkey. Pet the donkey. Feed the donkey. Whether it's yourself or someone else. Be merciful to those who doubt. And then try to isolate the exact problem. Is it more emotional? Is it more volitional? Is it more intellectual? Usually it's some combination of all of those. And a lot of people just kind of drift away. C.S. Lewis speaks of this in the screw tape letters. They just kind of drift But we need to audit our conscience and audit our intellect. Are we submitting ourselves to God? Are we taking every thought captive to obey Christ or not? So if we're having some kind of struggle, identify it. And I would go so far as to write it down. You read a passage in Scripture that doesn't make sense, especially New Testament, write it down, go to Craig Blomberg. He goes to this church. He didn't want to see me tonight, but, you know, he goes to this church. I don't know why he's not here. I'm just kidding. But keep track of the problems. Keep track of the doubts. What exactly is the problem? Seek wise counsel. Seek out people in the area. Seek out books. There's so many things now. There's a lot of junk online. You need some guidance and some help. I'd be willing to help anybody in this room who has a doubt about any aspect of Christianity, if I can. Now, sadly, I can't do it after the service. I have to go home and help my wife. I hate that. I hate that. Not that I hate hating. My, not that I hate my wife. I hate having to leave right after the service because I love to talk to people and pray with people. But tonight, I just have to leave immediately after. But if I can do anything for anybody in this room or anybody you know who's struggling with doubts or questions about other religions or atheism, if it's in my area, I'll do everything I can. If it's not in my area, I'll find somebody who can help. So seek wise counsel. Seek solid answers from God over time. There was once a man who came to Jesus who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus ministered to that man. He didn't say, go away. You don't have perfect faith. I can't do anything until you have perfect faith. That's not the merciful, loving Jesus. He ministered to that man. That's another sermon, by the way, but that's in Mark 9, 14 through 28. And if you're having doubts and struggles as a Christian, don't run away from the church. If it's a Bible-believing, healthy church, some people think, well, you know, I'm not sure if I believe. I have questions, I have doubts, and I'm around these people that seem to be much more certain. Maybe I should just stay home. Maybe I'm a hypocrite to show up in church. No, come. Listen, worship. I can't tell you how much uh, Be Still My Soul ministered to me tonight. I just kind of wanted to go home after that. I'll just ruin anything else that comes after that. (laughs) I didn't, obviously. I'm still talking. But um, I won't go into the details, but my wife and I have gone through a, a lot of suffering the last 10 or 15 years related to her health and just thinking about the world to come and how God will restore things in such a beautiful hymn ministered to me tremendously. And I'm going to go home and print that out and give it to her and put it on my Facebook page and just exult in that. So if you're having doubts and struggles and problems, keep coming to church. Interact with believers. Be open with people. Seek out help. Seek out counsel. And remember that great people can have great doubts. And when they're overcome, it makes for an even greater, more profound faith. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you so much for this example of the mercy and kindness and intelligence of Jesus. Thank you that all for all that he has done for us and for all the reasons we have to believe. We ask, Lord, you would fill us with the Holy Spirit of truth that we might make the kingdom, the gospel, the mission of God known to the world. Lord, I ask now that anyone who may be struggling with wondering if they're truly a Christian or the Bible's true or whatever it may be, you know perfectly and exhaustively their situation. I pray you administer to them directly or through friends, through reading, whatever it may be, Lord. Uh, We want to be built up. We want more knowledge of you that we make you known and rejoice in the knowledge of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.